And Quebec is fast-tracking a bill that would put severe restrictions on anti-vaccine protests taking place near schools, near hospitals, near COVID-19 testing clinics. The fines for people who would break these new rules could be as high as $12,000. Some say this is overdue. Others are arguing that it could go against our freedoms and many of the freedoms we enjoy in this country. Well, Julius Gray is a constitutional lawyer and he joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Can you talk a little bit more about this, uh, it, the appearance that in Quebec, this fast tracking of a bill that would ban anti-vaccine protests, any of these protests that are near schools or hospitals. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a clear violation of the Charter. The question is, can it be justified under Section 1? And under there's also the Quebec Charter, but it's not a different uh, uh, legal analysis uh, in, in any major way. Uh, it's also freedom of uh, association, so you've got the right to demonstrate association, uh, uh, freedom of expression. Uh, I think our government in particular in Quebec is a very, um, what we say, populist government that uh, uh, you know will say things like children shouldn't be exposed and so on, very, very authoritarian, populist government. And remember, two laws this year, they invoked the notwithstanding clause. I'm happy to say they didn't this time. But uh, the arguments surely are that demonstrations outside schools or hospitals are uh, generally permitted. For instance, unions can picket in front. Students themselves have been known to hold a demonstration against uh, something they didn't like in their school. Um, the uh, patients could demonstrate if they weren't happy with some ways in which a hospital or a, a clinic worked. Uh, so uh, the real problem is, uh, is there some danger? Uh, they are basing themselves on, on the fact that people were uh, prevented from uh, demonstrating in front of abortion clinics. But, you know, there was particular danger associated with that. Uh, there were some people who died in the United States. And uh, even though I think the reasoning still is the same that I'm going to give you now, uh, but one can understand that that's a slightly different issue. Here, uh, the uh, question is, is uh, does Section 1 of the Charter apply to create a reasonable limit? And, you know, it's a three-part test. First test, does the government have a laudable purpose? Surely they'll say yes. It, it wants to uh, protect uh, youth or whatever, um, or, or, or personnel in hospitals. Uh, is there some connection between the demonstration ban and that? And I think the answer might still be yes, though I have more doubts there. But the third test, I think, uh, they don't pass. The third test is, could you do something less uh, uh, invasive than a total demonstration ban? And the answer surely is, first of all, uh, noisy uh, demonstrations, uh, violent ones, uh, aggressive ones are already banned. In the, the criminal code has things, but unlawful assemblies and riots, and you can use those. Uh, secondly, uh, you can regulate things. You could say, um, you, that uh, uh, a maximum number of people, whatever, that might pass if, if, if only because it creates a calmer atmosphere, you know, not more than 15 or 20 people. But to say that they have to have a total ban is wrong. 
and their argument, the paternalistic one, that children shouldn't be exposed to anti-vaxxers, is, I think, plain wrong. I, uh, I personally don't agree with anti-vaxxers. I think it's a very anti-scientific position to take. But I think in our society, there are many controversial minority, radical views, whatever, and children should be given credit for discernment. They'll be able to understand what it's about. Children should know about the disputes, whether it's about abortion, whether it's about this, whether it's about gay marriage, whether it's uh, there, there is no reason to shelter children in the way in which uh, uh, our Quebec government wants to do it. That's what I mean by paternalistic and somewhat authoritarian in its attitude. So I think there is a violation of the Charter. I think freedom to demonstrate is extremely important. I remember I once uh, had a case before uh, the late Mr. Justice Greenberg uh, in Superior Court in Quebec, where the issue was people who were constantly demonstrating being caught in in sort of uh, unlawful assemblies. Could you, as an uh, as a condition of their release until their trial, order them not to demonstrate anywhere? And Greenberg said, absolutely not. The right to demonstrate is fundamental. Uh, if they demonstrate in a, in a way which gets them arrested again, we'll see it. But they have the right to demonstrate. And I think this is uh, the same here. So I don't agree at all with the cause that they're espousing, but I think uh, subject to the limits of violence, noise, uh, uh, insistence, uh, you know, accosting individual children or nurses, subject to those reasonable limits which are already covered by the criminal code, Right. I, I think uh, so, the law is excessive. We're looking at something, or the government in British Columbia is looking at something similar, talking about even using that phrase bubble zones around the same types of places, hospitals and schools. Uh, There was an incident in B.C. where protesters actually went into the school and that prompted the school to lock the doors from that point on after they were removed. Does it matter with the wording, with the Quebec wording, it's protests near hospitals, schools, daycares, uh, testing clinics for COVID. Uh, Does it matter that distance or what distance we're telling people you can protest but you can't do it inside the school or even perhaps on the school grounds inside the school and on the school grounds it's already covered by all sorts of laws property laws you can tell somebody to get off your lawn can't you you can uh, uh, and inside is, is disruptive and completely out so that that you don't need a law for that you just enforce the law uh, when it comes to a bubble i think that would be a form of regulation if it were reasonable, if you said 10 meters, 15 meters, so you'd have to go across the street, it might well be that the courts would uphold it. I think, you know, if I, if I were to decide that, I'd say there's no reason to, to be closer than that. You can be seen and you can be heard uh, when you're 15, 20 meters away. But if you have a bubble that is a kilometer, then obviously not, because you're destroying the very purpose uh, of that demonstration. Then you are just have the normal argument about Section 1. Um, I, I'm, you know, the, so the BC bubble, I mean, I, in, my, in my own mind, might pass as long as they have a reasonably uh, small distance. In other words, just to keep them away from doors or from uh, too too great a proximity. Notice that you know, I would note that you don't have any, anything. Uh, your government is not anything like the populist, very you know, sort of. Uh, authoritarian, conservative government that we have. But um, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think our government, too, could succeed if they regulated it by saying, get across the street or or do not 
under any circumstances, approach individuals and, and, and uh, try to intimidate them, uh, although that's already in the law. Uh, the, uh, the essence is that if freedom to demonstrate is essential, it should be possible to regulate it, but not to negate it totally, except in uh, uh, very special circumstances. And one other question, and this one has to do with hospitals, because, again, we saw a very large protest. It was on public property. It was on a street, but it was an arterial route to one of our major hospitals in B.C. And there's footage showing uh, an ambulance having trouble navigating through the crowd. People talked about after the fact they couldn't get into a cancer center for treatment. They were delayed by the protest. What about when we're talking about something where... Yes, it's on public property, and of course you have the right to protest, but if it impedes people getting health care and medical attention, does that change well, things? The police can regulate that. You can certainly can't block uh, emergency entrances. I, do must, I must point out to you that the massive street work in Montreal meant last year, and uh, even came out in a movie, uh, that uh, it was difficult to get to emergencies because the city was doing the work and nobody seemed to want to prohibit. But uh, nevertheless, I'm certain that you could regulate that. And that would be upheld. If you said you must keep this corridor open for, for uh, uh, emergency vehicles and so on, then, then, then it would work. Uh, what uh, you cannot do is negate the right to demonstrate uh, without uh, really convincing reasons. Thank you so much for joining us. We're right out of time, but I so appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for coming on the program. It's a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Well, we talk about housing quite often. It was certainly one of the focuses of the federal election campaign. Not sure if we moved the needle very much on that. But something happening in North Vancouver, the city of North Vancouver, is hoping to at least get a conversation going about different ways, different pathways to home ownership. And it has to do with a rent-to-home model. And joining me to talk more about this, is the mayor of the city of North Vancouver, Linda Buchanan. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. My pleasure. Well, we certainly do spend a lot of time talking about housing, uh, talking about home ownership and how it's out of reach for so many people. So talk a little bit about, first, let's take a look at a project that uh, has taken place in the city of North Vancouver. This has to do with rent-to-own homes in one particular development. How did that all come about? Well, that's, that was part of a, uh, an amenity that, um, as part of the project that came forward to council. So it was for delivering, I believe it's eight, uh, uh, it was supposed to be nine, but I think it's eight rent-to-own units um, as part of the larger um, proposal that came forth to council and was approved. And eight people, I understand hundreds of people actually applied or wanted to take part in this. What did this actually do for the eight uh, people that got or the eight families that were part of this? So 800 people have expressed interest in this. So we know there's huge demand. And, and certainly for, for this particular, this is one model. There's different models that are out there. Um, for this, it's really about... Um, 
putting down rent for, you know, they pay their rent for, for two years and, and then close to that two years, they have to make a decision whether they will carry on and, and that rent will be applied to, will be applied to uh, the mortgage um, or they decide that they're, that they're moving on and, and need to, to move on to something else and then it would be available for someone else. So I think what's important around particularly the, the notice of motion that I brought forth with Councillor Gerard and our council unanimously approved is, you know, that there are different models. And so the details are super important. Um, and, you know, really what we want to do is hear back from staff on what direction they believe will fit beyond this particular project. Because what we know is that middle income earners, many who are, are you know, young professionals or people growing up uh, in our community who have come back to our community, many of our essential service workers, they can afford to pay rent, but they can't do rent and save for a down payment. So, you know, rent to own is a really critical piece of delivering homes for people. And, you know, the market takes care of the market. We've got programs that support people who are, you know, um, more uh, in the non-market sector. But it's really these middle income earners. And so it's out of reach for them to, to get home ownership. So it's this is about supporting them in sort of shared equity and and again there's multi, there's different programs and we want to see how we can actually scale this up in our community. So it would work it sounds like a model where like you say if somebody's paying rent for 2 years in in one of these homes that it's kind of like a forced savings account and then that money kind of become the default down payment. Yes. Yes, that's my understanding. But again, there's different models and depending on the financial institution that's involved. So, you know, again, this is about exploring like this project was one developer, um, Cascadia Green, that, you know, is very interested in, in, in looking at this. There's different financial institutions that are looking at it. Um, other developers are looking at it. So again, we really want our staff to be exploring this and really looking at what could the city be doing in order to support, again, scaling this up and making this more available for for the the young middle-income earners in our community. And they, they don't even have to be young, just middle-income earners in our community. Yeah. <laughs> um, where's the incentive or, or the benefit, I guess? How do you get financial institutions to come on board with this kind of a project? Well, I think that's, you know, that's that's where we want to explore and that's where staff, have to, you know, they go away and, and do the work and, and start to look at it. And I think this is, you know, this is something that has been talked about at your intro. You know, we talk about housing and housing affordability uh, all the time. And I think we have to start looking at different models and different innovative ways in which we can bring on more developers and more financial institutions and um, that, you know, we can start to look at what what are the what's what's the um, formula that's going to work? And of course, you know, every um, development, every performa is can be slightly different. And so we have to be looking at they have to be looking at what's going to work and and then support um, support, support the people. Certainly, from my perspective, you know, I want to be looking at delivering solutions that are going to work for the people in our community. You know, I hear every day from our business, almost every day from our business community, like how challenged challenging it is for our business community to attract people uh, to the jobs, which, again, then profoundly impacts our local economy. So we want to make sure that people who are coming here every day to do their jobs, uh, which we've seen profound job growth across the North Shore, we've done really well in the city, is we want these people to be able to live in our community and 
and it makes it easier for employers, you know, when they know that there's housing that's available um, for their workers. Um, certainly makes it easier for them to retain, attract, and then retain these workers. And I would think a lot of this also has to do with the supply and building more housing and having more housing, whether it's something that's taking part in a rent to own project, uh, trying that out. But to 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 get people places to live, I, I would imagine it's also it's supply and getting new housing and housing built. It's supply and it's the right kind of supply that we need. Um, but I think, you know, supply is going when we have you know, people who are, you know, again, can afford rent, but can't do rent and save, then they go into rentals that perhaps are, you know, could be freed up if they're able to go into something like this, then it frees up, you know, rentals that are, you know, some of our older stock that's more affordable for people. Um, Then it allows, you know, all people, depending on what their income levels is, to be able to, to find the kind of housing they need. And again, I mean, there's a continuum of housing. There's there's different needs for different people. This particular this particular model is something that we want to be exploring and, and and again scaling up to be making sure that the people who are working here are able to live here if if they so choose. And you know this is a uh, this is something that uh, our newly uh, newly elected um, prime minister and his party spoke to in their platform. So I'm certainly going to be talking to him as well as our local MP about how they can be supporting, you know, again, this model that uh, however it ends up being, depending again on what it might look like, depending on which institution or or, uh, developer is involved. But the reality is we have we have to start looking at better or newer and innovative ways in which to provide housing for um, our middle income earners. And I know it's still in the in the planning stages, and this is to have staff look at it more and see what more can be done. But when you say middle income, would there be a cap on how much somebody can make? Or is there a range of salary there that this would be specifically targeted at? Um, I, I think I did run a balanced housing lab in the city since I've become mayor to sort of look at what are the you know innovative ways in which we can continue to deliver housing. And so when we look at middle income earners, it's often people making sort of fifty to a hundred, hundred and ten thousand dollars, which tends to be you know an average middle income uh, um, salary for people. Um, I think for the for the ones uh, on the development that we were speaking to, it's it's roughly between seventy eight and ninety six thousand. So again, it, it it is all dependent and on the performers and you know land costs and development costs and all those things. So that's why we we want to really explore you know how how this can work and what makes sense for it to work, um, and really be able to get young people. Uh, uh, sorry, I keep saying young people get people <laughs> who are middle income earners in, in, into home ownership. Um, because again, the, many of them are able to pay for the rent, but they can't do both, and it's becoming further and further out of reach for them. Um, so it's it's a one one tool that we need to explore further, and something that I would really like to, our staff to be exploring further and and look how we can make this happen in in, in my city. All right. Well, we'll be waiting and uh, looking to see what comes of this uh, and how things unfold. We'll leave it there for today. But Mayor Buchanan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. Always appreciate the opportunity. 
Well, if you are somebody who uses transit, you may have noticed the train cars, the buses feeling a little more crowded these days. You are not imagining it. TransLink is experiencing its highest boost in ridership in 18 months. So let's talk more about that. Jeff Cross is the VP of Policy and Planning with TransLink, and he's on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, it's great to be back, Jill. Uh, this is a, a good news story, I'm sure, as far as TransLink is concerned. Is it people going back to work, going back to school, or what do you think is behind this? It, it absolutely is a, a great story. We've been uh, looking forward to this um, uh, step, if you will, uh, in September, primarily with post-secondary institute students going back to in-class learning. We knew that would happen. Uh, we have 140,000, roughly, students in Metro Vancouver with a U-Pass. And, you know, not having been in school, in class for the last year and a half, we've seen our ridership drop uh, significantly. So when we saw them go back, we saw a a huge uptick, uh, almost 17% in one week, about 120,000 more boardings uh, than we were seeing previously. And what does that mean for the finances at TransLink? Well, it's very important. As you know, ridership is roughly just under 40% normally pre-COVID of our actual revenues. Uh, And so now we're at about 55% of our pre-COVID service level. So seeing that ridership revenue come back is going to be essential to our recovery. You know, we're hoping uh, as we get into uh, step four, of the BC restart plan at some point, either this fall or soon thereafter, uh, that we get more into the sort of 70 to 90% um, range of pre-COVID ridership that will help stabilize our revenues. Uh, So looking at the routes that service post-secondary institutions make sense with the return of in-person classes and people using transit, are you also seeing, though, increases or people coming back to other routes, ones that aren't really on the path or linked in any way to post-secondary? Yeah, the uptick that we saw was not just totally explainable by uh, university demand. Uh, We're seeing strong demand in many uh, parts of the region, Surrey, Delta, Langley, Township of Langley, uh, have been really high. And part that's because there's maybe more essential and frontline worker activity in those municipalities. We've also seen some of the ridership to some of the business parks, whether it be Campbell Heights, et cetera, where where it's actually getting uh, around 90% of pre-COVID levels. So as activity ramps up, people go either back to their workplace or kind of routes that service activity hubs, whether they be um, Whitecaps games or other things, you'll start to see more concentrated demand. And what are you doing then as far as I I think people, while they are comfortable and they felt comfortable riding transit throughout the pandemic, for the most part, people who continue to do so, there is still, it still feels strange. And and, and I'm sure for a lot of people, it can bring on some anxiety when suddenly you're shoulder to shoulder with people again. So what measures are in place as far as making sure people are still safe as we are still going to have COVID in the community? Yeah, thank you, Jill. Of course, that's important for everybody. And and we know after 18 months that we have maybe a higher sensitivity to that than we did in the past. Uh, So obviously, like everywhere else indoors, we uh, masks are mandatory on transit and have been for some time again. Uh, We do have our enhanced cleaning and we're making sure people are really aware of our safe operating action plan uh, going forward, including distancing elsewhere on the system when you're uh, lining up, etc., 
Uh, we do have the barriers for our operators on buses that are in place so that feel, people feel more comfortable. Uh, we've had no documented cases of transmission on the system. You know, we have enhanced ventilation, things like that. So we do feel it is very safe. As you pointed out, we were seeing, you know, over a half million daily boardings uh, even during the pandemic. And now as more people come back, they'll feel more comfortable. The other thing that we're doing is to try and reallocate some of our bus services to places where we know that demand is coming back more quickly so that we are able to kind of reduce some of that overcrowding. It's not perfect and we're kind of reactive in that way, but we're uh, definitely trying to do that versus we know there are some routes into downtown, et cetera, where demand might be lower and we were running very high frequencies previously that we can reduce that a bit so that people feel more comfortable coming back. And what about masks? I know there is the mask mandatory mandatory policy now, but I think anybody that rides on transit, you you will inevitably see a couple of people per trip that maybe aren't wearing masks or are wearing them incorrectly. Is there any enforcement to try and stop that? Yeah, uh, we would say that our compliance rates are incredibly high from the surveys that we have been doing. And I ride the system a lot, as do, obviously, a lot of my coworkers. We have our transit security and police people watching. The, the rates are very, very high. There is information that's provided to people, and we do do occasional checks as well. Um, by and large, we're really um, comfortable with the levels we're seeing. We are encouraging people, obviously, to try and do it all the time. And do you see things changing? Yesterday on the show, we were talking uh, with a Langley City Councillor about the report that came to TransLink on the, the Surrey to Langley City SkyTrain extension. Uh, the, the, some saying it's delayed, some saying that it's not. But he made the point of, of in the future, we might be looking at transit systems that, that are more like a Saturday or Sunday when we see people changing their work, whether it's working from home, not working in the office as much, that we will have a difference when it comes to the traditional rush hours as opposed to what, what it might look like after the pandemic once we're through this. Do you see TransLink changing so it is a different type of system and doesn't focus on on high capacity at rush hour? I see. We've been seeing that trend for for many years, actually. Our Saturday ridership was really high even before the COVID, like very comparable to weekdays. So we saw the sort of spreading out of demand as a pattern that was already happening. Now, this is intensified. And I think you and I spoke about this months ago. It's actually not a bad thing to be able to size the system, not for the peak of the peak, but to have it more spread out amongst the day for different kinds of trips. So we do believe that that's something that structurally will probably have changed, um, that more people definitely than pre-COVID will work from home or work remotely, and that will reduce our peaks. Hopefully it does the same for on the roads as we watch uh, congestion levels as well. And as such, we'll look at reshaping our service plans. Maybe it needs the off-peak to be less dramatic of a difference than during the peak. Uh, We do know as a growing region with more than a million people uh, projected to arrive here in the next uh, 25 years or so, that uh, we are going to see more and more demand. So continuing to expand the system uh, is going to be really important, uh, including that Surrey to Langley SkyTrain by 2028, which uh, is not delayed in our view, has been the uh, messaging uh, since the province took over the project. And what about the revenues? And I know we touched on this and on some routes, the ridership is back up, but it's still not back to pre-COVID ridership. So how does TransLink deal with that continued dip when it comes to revenue? 
So a couple of things. We uh, entered into a memo of understanding uh, over a year ago uh, between uh, the Mayor's Council Board and the province to really examine this and um, try and come up with a sustainable funding uh, strategy and, and to ensure that we're able to deliver the services that are needed for this region. Uh, that resulted in that um, restart funding that we received from both the province and the federal government that's covering us through the loss for our losses uh, through 2020 and 2021, and we continue to work with the Mayor's Council, the Board, and the province on on how we're going to fill the ongoing structural gap. Now, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to how large that will be. As I mentioned, we're hoping that ridership will recover to somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of pre-COVID next year, and that leaves us with a very significant gap of anywhere from 100 to 300 million dollars. So, working to solve that, probably in stages with the Mayor's Council Board and the province, is uh, priority number one for us uh, in the next um, three to six months. And what message do you have? I know you mentioned there, there's not been cases or documented cases of transmission on the system. Uh, we've, we've seen safety measures as far as cleaning and such, but there are still going to be people, especially with the Delta variant, who are very reluctant to get back on transit. So how do you convince people to get back to, to riding transit and that it's safe? Um, people have to do what they feel comfortable doing, and what we've seen and what we can express is is exactly what you just said. We we do feel we're operating a very safe environment. Uh, people are generally on the vehicles very uh, for a short period of time, are in and out. Uh, they are masked. Um, we do have protections in place. Uh, and we also do have more room on the system at this point. If we're operating at 55% of our pre-COVID levels, you'll see that on SkyTrain or CBUS or West Coast Express, there is more room. So you can feel comfortable. Those perceptions of crowdness are definitely coming down. But people have to do what, uh, what they feel comfortable doing, and we're following the lead of the PHO and their restart planning. And the plexiglass that protects the drivers, I know in the past, before the pandemic, there was often a lot of reluctance to that because it really kind of cut the driver off from being uh, from from the the vehicle. Do you think that's going to stay? Um, I, I think that it, it's been very successful. We'll see what the circ- as the circumstances around the, the actual pandemic change and what the perceptions of the operators are. But I think they've been very comfortable and a lot of them have, well, I know they very much appreciate that additional protection during the pandemic. And is it worth those trade-offs to the point that you made? Uh, I think we'll have to see going forward. But I think there are lots of pros and cons. But in general, it's been a huge uh, benefit during the last uh, 16 to 18 months. All right, Uh, Jeff, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us on. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, you know, if you have to go to a hospital or a doctor's appointment, whether it's for urgent treatment or something routine, you go, you get the treatment typically, and then you leave. And you never really know or probably even really wonder what the cost of that visit was. Well, some new numbers show us exactly, well, give us a better idea on what the price of public health care is in this country. And joining me to talk a bit more about how they came up with these numbers is Bacchus Barua, Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. Bacchus, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me on the show. What specifically did you look at as far as how do you even go about figuring out what everything costs in a system where it's not itemized, it's generally paid for by taxes? 
you know, that's that's precisely the problem. It's actually very difficult for the average family to understand how much they're they're paying for healthcare. You know, in our country, we don't really see a bill for healthcare services, and there isn't a dedicated health insurance tax. You know, you look at a T4 form, you're not going to see healthcare as a line item over there. Um, but of course, I think most Canadians know that we do pay for healthcare through our tax system, um, and that's through a combination of income taxes, general taxes, sales taxes. Um, what we do in the study, which we do every year, is we look at how much um, the total healthcare spending is in Canada. And we look at um, the different tax burdens for families every single year, um, which we're able to do through um, through our, our, our tax freedom day uh, calculator that's released early in the year. And when we combine those two, we're able to get a sense of, okay, what percentage of those taxes are actually going towards healthcare in order to fund them? Um, and that's how we come up with our calculations. Uh, I know it's a roundabout way, but, but but that's the best that we can do. And I wish the government was actually more transparent about it. Uh, so what did you find then, if you look at, at various types of families, whether it's a single person, it's a, a couple with kids, a couple without kids? Or did there, I mean, there are so many different makeups of families, but I know you looked at a few and tried to figure that out. Yeah, what we do is we start with about six representative family types. Um, you know, I'll kind of give you the highlights of, of maybe maybe the two extremes. One of them is, is the typical Canadian family that's two parents, two children. Um, their average income is about $150,000 in the year. Um, and for that kind of family, they're probably paying about $15,000 for health care. Uh, when we're looking at a single individual, you know, earning about $50,000 in a year, they're probably paying about $4,300 uh, in health care. And then we have a number of other families with, you know, two parents and a, and a variety of different children um, that we can we can uh, separate it out for. Uh, we also do it by by income type as well for, for different kinds of families, just so that we can get an idea of, of how that changes according to income. Um, so when you hear those numbers, though, I think people might say, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? The more you make, if you're a bigger family and you have a bigger income, there's a more of a chance you're going to be using health care, paying into the system. And it would make sense that, that, that those numbers would be so different. For sure. I mean, you know, when we're looking at, uh, you know, if we just say the average Canadian family by income type, when we're looking at the, at the lowest decile, so the lowest 10% of income earners, um, they're you know, going to probably be paying about $800 for health care through the tax system. And then if we look at the highest 10% of income earners, they're actually going to be paying about $42,000 for health care through the tax system. So, yes, it absolutely does vary. We have a progressive tax system, and that's, you know, what's happening over here. Uh, but this is really just about, you know, providing some information for Canadians to understand, okay, how much are we actually paying for the system? You know, the first step is really moving away from that free moniker, which I think is, is used far too much. Um, I think Canadians do know that we are paying for health care. Uh, but the question is, how much? How much are we actually paying to our, to our bills? And then, you know, subsequent questions about, uh, about what we're tacking onto that bill in the future start to become more pertinent. You know, Canada's three largest parties campaigned on, on higher health care spending, uh, higher non-COVID-related health care spending uh, during the last election. Uh, but if we're starting at a point where Canadians don't actually know how much they're currently spending, it's a difficult thing to do to say, yeah, we'll just tack on a little bit more in the future. So this is just a starting point to help Canadians say, OK, here's where we are right now. And then we can think about what are we adding to this bill? Uh, are you able to, and I don't know if you did in this study, but do you ever look at then other countries that have similar healthcare systems and to see if the numbers are similar as well? We do actually, not in this particular study. This is really focused on Canadians and, and how those trends have changed over the years. But, you know, just to give you a rough idea, if we're looking at total healthcare spending in Canada compared to other countries with universal healthcare, there are actually 27 other countries with, with universal healthcare around the world. Canada routinely la- ranks amongst the top spenders. Um, 
if we, you know, adjust for age, you know, Germany and, and countries like that have much older populations. Canada ranks as the second highest spender in terms of um, healthcare spending as a percentage of the economy. Uh, it ranks somewhere, I believe, about uh, seventh, uh, sixth or seventh, depending on the year we're looking at in terms of healthcare spending per capita. And those ranks change a little bit if you if you just look at unadjusted figures. Then it becomes, I think. Um, I can't remember. I think it's fifth and, and ninth, respectively. But we're always amongst the top third, at least in terms of healthcare spending. Um, but that then becomes a question of, okay, what are we getting for that spending? You know, uh, how come we're spending that much, and, and we still have some of the lowest ratios of physicians per capita? We have the second lowest ratio of beds per capita. We have remarkably long long wait times. Um, and again, we can, you know, we, we seem to be having separate conversations about each of these things. But really, we should be having the the whole picture of. What are we putting into the system? What do we get out of it? And are we getting good value for that money? And over here in this study, it's more about here's what you're paying. Look at the trends in the past. See how incomes have changed at the same time. Is this really a sustainable approach going forward? Um, And do you think you're getting good value for that money? It's just helping Canadians have those conversations. Right. And do you think people are more more focused then on looking at that number and seeing, okay, that's what it costs for healthcare, and then considering or thinking more about how they're using the system or accessing the system, or kind of more what you were saying in that, well, if it's not the best value for our dollar, how do we change that? You know, the use of the, the system is, is, is a little bit of a different issue, because um in most other countries with universal health care, patients are expected to pay, you know, portions through co-payments and things like that. So people do get a better understanding of how much it costs for them to use the system. Uh, in Canada, we don't have any co-payments or co-insurance. And so we have really no idea. And therefore, probably, you know, we don't really have a sense of how scarce and expensive these resources are when we use them. Um, but this is, you know, the, the calculation we're doing here is something about how much you pay for healthcare regardless of whether you you use it or not. And there are two big discussions that come out of it. One is exactly what we talked about in terms of, okay, are you getting good value for it? And the other is, okay, how much, if we look back, for example, 25 years in about 1997, when we could kind of start looking at this data, we see that healthcare grew by about 177%, uh, the the amount that the average family pays. But incomes during that same time grew up by about 109%. So healthcare has grown faster than incomes during the same time. In fact, it grew 1.6 times as fast as incomes. And that starts to tell us a little bit about the sustainability of the system because whatever the expenses are, there's only one pair, and that's the Canadian public. So it's just helping us understand what are we paying? Is this sustainable? Is this good value for money? And maybe all those answers are yes, but in some cases that might not be the case. Yeah, it's when you when you mentioned too the co-payment. I, I guess the only time we really get an idea on, on what things cost is when we're talking about extended health benefits. If you have that through your employer, uh, you're able to, or if you're paying out of pocket for things like physiotherapy or chiropractic treatments or, or massage therapy. Uh, it seems like in those scenarios, you do get a bit of an idea, but but not when you're going to say a clinic or a hospital. Precisely. And and most other universal healthcare countries expect patients to, to pay a certain portion of their costs. You know, usually it's about between 10 and 20 percent or they have a deductible and say, okay, well, you pay the first two or three hundred dollars. But of course, you know, they always have exemptions for vulnerable populations. They always have caps to say, well, you know, once you reach a thousand dollars, everything is free. And it's really about setting up a system where people are getting an idea of what it costs. They're tempering demand so that, you know, we understand that these are scarce resources to be used responsibly while still protecting 
vulnerable populations. But, you know, getting into copays is an entirely different discussion. This is, again, you know, some, this is these, um, uh, the figure that we're talking about right now, about the $15,000 for the average family, is something that a family is going to pay regardless of whether they use healthcare or not this year. And it's just something that helps them understand where the tax dollars are actually going. All right. We'll leave it there. Bacchus Barua, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. The B.C. government is asking people what they would like to see when it comes to paid sick days. And three options have been developed and people are asked to weigh in on whether they think it should be a minimum number of three, five or ten days of sick of paid sick leave. And the comments are open until October 25th if you want to join that conversation. But we wanted to talk a little bit more about that today. So joining us is Seth Scott, Senior Policy Analyst with BC and the North with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on this? The numbers being put out, first of all, the idea of the choices being three, five or ten days of paid sick leave. Yeah, well, you know, Joe, uh, I guess I'll start with, you know, this is a really uh, not a great time uh, for small businesses. I mean, we're looking at, you know, in in BC on average, we're looking at about 39% of small businesses are making normal revenues. They're coming out of the pandemic with over $129,000 in average debt. And, you know, it's it's been a long road for them. Restrictions, no restrictions. Mask mandate, no mask mandate. You know, there's, there's been a lot of things going on. Uh, so, you know, this is a bad time for consultation. And, and the CFIB, along with uh, many other business groups, uh, expressed that uh, to the government early uh, to, to no avail. And, you know, we've seen uh, the three, five and, and ten days come out here. And, uh, you know, our opinion is the same. This is not a great time to saddle uh, small businesses and uh, with, uh, additional costs. Uh, many of them cannot afford it. And we also got to remember that these three employer paid days are also into addition to three days of unpaid. Uh, so we're actually kind of looking at six, eight, and 13 days total. And although those extra three days are not, you know, a direct pecuniary cost uh, to the businesses, they are, they are a cost uh, in, in terms of, uh, of labor. Uh, and obviously, you probably know we're, we're in the midst of a labor shortage. So, you know, this is a bad time for businesses, and, and, and I hope government will uh, will think about extending this. What about the argument, and I, and I guess it would depend on the size of your business, but the argument that if an employee comes to work sick, uh, say the employee has COVID and infects others, that's also going to be extremely detrimental to the business. You know, you're right, that that is detrimental. Um, and if, if small businesses feel that, that is going to be more detrimental than than or cost them m- much more money than uh, having paid sick days. Then that's a choice they can make to offer those employees paid sick days. But I mean, it, it really does depend on, on the size of the business. Um, and like I said, it, it, it's a tough go. And you know, I want to make this clear: it's not that small businesses don't care uh, that people are coming in sick or that you know that that their employees. Uh, feel that they have to work. That, that's not the case. In fact, you know, I, I, small businesses are, are, are very flexible uh, with their employees for the most part. But it, it, it's a question of cost. So, you know, if government is going to implement this, either they got to extend this and, and, and let businesses really consult on this, or or perhaps subsidize businesses and, and continue doing the paid sick days like they're doing uh, currently, uh, but uh, extend that uh, until businesses are back on their feet. 
Right. And if you look at, so what they're doing currently, if, I, if I'm correct, so that's up to $200 per day per worker. That's for three days of leave to cover, that's to cover the employee's wages if they are, if they call in sick with COVID-19? Uh, that's correct. And would, would you like to see that extended then? Could it be if you called in sick for any particular reason, just that we're, we've been told since the beginning of the pandemic not to go to work if you're feeling sick at all? How long would you want to see that extended? Well, I mean, honestly, you know, Joe, we're, we're a member-driven organization, and, and, you know, we're going to have to ask our members specifically, you know, on this issue, you know, how many days would you like to see? But uh, at the end of the day, what we'd really like to see is is government to to push that consultation out, um, and if they're going, if I'm, I'm if they're going to go forward with this program, if 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 they're not going to consult businesses, uh, you know, uh, let businesses have have a, have a longer consultation period, then yeah, we, we would like to see them, you know, pay for whatever amount of days uh, that that they're going to be putting forward. But you also got to remember. That we are in a in, in in a pretty pretty tight labor shortages. We you know we have some fresh data on that. A lot of businesses are, are in BC are experiencing um, a big shortage in labor, and and it's been really hard for them to to, to keep the doors open and, and serve the community. So also keep in mind that the number of days you know has to be uh, that could exasperate that, that labor shortage if, if we're looking at you know you know, three days, even five days, if we start getting into 10 days, you know, we're looking at somebody being gone for, for a whole week. So, you know, I, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, is small businesses are in a tough spot. You know, it, it's a lot of, it, it's, it's a big cost to them. And I think, uh, you know, the government needs to give them a little bit more time to, to really think this through and, 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 and wait until they're in a better financial situation to be able to, to properly uh, consult on this. Right, which I, I think makes sense, and people would understand. And and again, not not trying to paint business owners as as mean people that don't want to give their employees time off when they're sick. But it does, as you said, it it comes at a significant cost. Yeah, I mean, I I, I you know I understand that, but you know, and, and like I said <laughs> multiple times here, uh, it, it, you know, it's the wrong time for this consultation. It was put in. You know the consultation. It came very quickly. Um, you know, stage one was was very quick, and then you know the the second stage here is is going to be over in October. Um, that's not a lot of time. You know, if you imagine you're a small business owner, you want to consult on this. You're thinking, well, what can I afford for you know uh, employer paid sick days? You know, I have a lot of debt, and and you know you're just trying to keep your doors open. You're trying to hire staff, and uh, all of a sudden you have a, a two month consultation. It's over, and it's implemented. Like, did they really get enough uh, employer voices? Uh, I don't know. I'm just saying they, they should really think about, about, you know, the timing of this and, and possibly pushing this out until businesses can really uh, think through and consult on this properly. All right. Seth Scott, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Well, if you have a drawer full of phone chargers, maybe you're only hanging on to them because you think in the future you might have something you can charge with it. Maybe you haven't used it for years. You're probably not alone. There are probably many people listening right now that have that drawer of cords and they don't even know what they might still attach to. Well, the European Union, the European Commission is presenting an idea for a common charger for all mobile phones, for tablets, headphones phones. 
one charger to fit them all. That's coming out of the European Union. Is this even possible? Well, who else to talk about this? But Andy Barrar, tech expert, Handy Andy Media. He is on the line with us now. Hey, Andy, how are you doing? Hi, Jill. I'm doing well. Funny enough, I was actually cleaning my drawer of cables uh, this last weekend to take it to the recycling depot. So I'm very up to tune with this story. <laughs> well, so, so I think you, I know I have a drawer full of old cables. I don't know why I keep them. I do have hoarding tendencies, but I, I'm loath to throw things away or recycle them as you are. A lot of people do. Is it even realistic, though, to think that we could go to a system of one charger to fit them all? Oh, absolutely, Jill. You know, they've been talking about this for almost 20 years. Now, before the iPhone, like, say, pre-2007, when we just had cell phones, not smartphones, people might remember that we had all these different types of chargers. And and that's why they really started um, creating micro USB at the time, because we needed to just have one standard because there was so much e-waste. Well, they haven't learned over the years because they've had holdouts, namely Apple, who did not want to play fair ball when it came to the micro USB port, because when the iPhone 5 came out back in 2012, they came out with the lightning port to replace their 30-pin connector. And a lot of people, you might remember, Jill, were mad because they had all these accessories that had the 30-pin, and now they had to upgrade to the lightning. Fast forward nine years later, we're still using the lightning cable. And it was the biggest shock when the iPhone 13 came out for me personally that they continued to use the lightning cable, even though the other side of the cable, instead of a USB-A, they've already adopted the USB-C. But they're just holding out and it looks like the European Union has finally had to said enough's enough and they're going to pressure Apple to go with one single cable and play fair ball with everyone else and that being USB-C. Hmm. But what would force Apple to do that if they're, they're a private company? If they don't want to, could they be forced? They can't necessarily. Well, it looks like the European Union is trying to do that. They're trying to force Apple and It'll be really interesting to see what happens with Apple because a lot of people suspected that they would finally adopt USB-C because they've already done it with their other devices, whether it was a MacBook or even the iPad Pro has USB-C. But for some reason, they keep the lightning alive. And I think a lot of it has to do with the licensing. They make a lot of money when they have to license out this separate cable. And it's frustrating for consumers because you don't, depending on what you want charged, you have to ask, are you on Android or are you on Apple? Because you would have to have a separate cable. And I just wish one day, Jill, we could have a single cable for all of our devices. And the European Union is trying to do that. We'll see what Apple does in the future and if they will agree to it or not. And is, is it only Apple then that is the holdout? What about the other makers of tablets and computers and phones? It is only Apple. In fact, Amazon was holding out from USB-C only because they were continuing to use the micro-USB, the old connection. But I have to say, the the old micro-USB is actually an inferior technology because it's not reversible. And to give Apple credit, you know, when they introduced the lightning port, that was a game-changer, that you could actually have a port that was reversible. It didn't matter what way you put it in. But with the advent of USB-C, which is a fabulous technology, you can transfer audio, video, data, Um, You know, it's a fantastic technology, but Apple is just still holding out. And I don't even think I if I I don't have a farm, Jill, but if I had one, I bet that Apple is not going to ever put USB-C in their devices because they never had the 
they never played fair ball with everyone else. They've always had their 30 pin to the lightning, but they've never adopted the same standard as everyone else. And is it because they just want to appear different? Or they want to be unique? Well, I love their, I love the Apple's response to the European decision. They said, oh, well, this stifles innovation. But, you know, we got to talk about e-waste. In the European Union alone, there's seven or 11,000 metric tons of e-waste every year. The average consumer out there has three chargers and they use two of them. And if you look at anyone's drawers, you know where the other one is. And so Apple is just I don't know, I just think they're, it's almost like hubris, like an outrageous arrogance that, oh, we have to have a different cable. We're talking about a copper cable, Jill. You know, it's just to power our devices. However, last year they introduced their MagSafe technology. This is their wireless technology to charge their devices. And if my prediction's right, they'll never adopt USB-C. The next iPhone, whether it's the iPhone 14 or the 15, they'll just completely go portless and just have a wireless transfer of both power and data. That's where I think Apple is going, and I think that's why they're holding out for Lightning for at least the next year or two. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? If, if the issue is e-waste and we're buying these cables, the cables break eventually, we're throwing them away, we're recycling them. Not all of them, though. Some of them are going to the landfills. If that's the main argument, if Apple come out and, come out and say, well, we'll do you one better, we're not going to make it so the same cable works, we're going to get rid of the cables altogether. Well, you'll still need a cable. You're going to need one of these wireless chargers to still charge your device. So it's still an accessory, but... The way that Apple's playbook is they want to make money off the accessories. It's almost like at this point, Apple might as well make printers because they can make money off the, the, the ink that they tried to sell us at exorbitant prices because they're taking right out of that playbook where it's the accessories that you want to make additional money. But at the same time, for consumers, Jill, you know, we just want a single cable. Imagine our houses if we had different outlets. We had different ones for different manufacturers. But for some reason, we let Apple get away with this for so long. But it took the European Union finally to say enough's enough. Like, just give us a single cable to charge our devices. It's not that hard. I don't know why Apple is making it so difficult. And the argument that it stifles innovation, you know, you got to look at the environmental costs of the e-waste. So their argument really doesn't hold true, if you ask me. I, I've, I don't know that I've ever heard you so riled up about a single issue before. I, I, Jill, you know, when the iPhone 13 came out, I was like, what tech reviewer is going to call Apple out that, they, that they're continuing to use Lightning? And no one did because they, they just have so much control over the tech media where they will give you the iPhone to review. But if you were critical, they'll take that back right away and never put you on the list. This is why I don't get iPhones to review anymore, Jill, because if something bugs me, I say it, and a lot of people don't, and that's why I do get riled up about stuff like this. And I guess why you're no longer allowed to go to those exclusive events. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and you either play through Apple's game, and it's very, very clever how they control the tech media, but I just will not play by that, those rules, especially when something like this, you know, someone has to ask them those tough questions. Like, why do you keep using this lightning port when everybody, every single tech company has gone USB-C? It just doesn't make sense to me, Jill. You mentioned, though, people are still buying Apple. It's still very popular. So I wonder if there will come a point when people will understand that, that Apple has taken a, a, taken a stance, is not doing this. If, if somebody, I would imagine, considers themselves to be very environmentally conscious of what's going on, do you still then purchase that phone, that charging device, knowing about e-waste, or do you turn a blind eye to it? 
Well, absolutely. I hope when people make their purchasing decisions, they take these things into account because I really do feel sorry for Apple users who have, who, if they lose their lightning cable, it's not like you can just go ahead and buy another cable. It's still going to cost you more than a standard USB-C cable. So people should be outraged. But I just don't understand why no one's complained about it for so long. And it just, I just feel that Apple has controlled the messaging so well that they, they just, they don't let people talk about these things. They might say it in private, but no one, especially in the tech media, will say it in public. So what do you think is going to happen next? We've had the European Union come out saying it is time for a universal charger. We're talking about cell phones, all devices. So what would actually need to happen for that to happen? Well, they would still have to get that passed into law. But the fact that this was leaked out into the public, you know, it's not a good look for Apple because they're trying to be stewards of the environment. They're trying to say they're going carbon neutral. But at the same time, you've got to ask these questions like, why wouldn't you just adopt the same cable? I just want to charge my phone or I just want to transfer some videos onto my, my laptop. Why do I have to have a separate cable? So I hope people make you know, take that into consideration because they are paying more for this cable. There's a lot of licensing fees go when you own that end of the cable where USDC is kind of the universal standard that we could all be using. And hopefully one day, Jill, we could have just a single cable to charge any device, whether it's our laptop, our tablets or our smartphones. All right, Andy, we'll leave it there. I didn't realize this was such a a topic so close to your heart, but I'm glad that you came on the show to talk about this because I think others do agree with you and would also like to see this change. So we'll leave it there. And hopefully next time we talk about this, we'll be talking about something totally different. My pleasure, Jill. Sorry for the rant, but I had to let it out. (laughs) That is absolutely okay. That is tech expert Andy Barrar with Handy Andy Media. Well, a BC woman has received an award for a lot of work that advocates for people with disabilities. We're talking about the BC Community Achievement Award, and we wanted to find out a little bit more about that. And... To t- joining us to talk more about that is Nora Flaherty, and Nora is on the line with us. Hey, good afternoon to you. Hello, Jill. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Very well. No complaints. Thank you. <laughs> well, congratulations on getting the award. Yeah, it was uh, fairly uh, surprising and very overwhelming, I must admit. So let's talk a little bit uh, more about this. Again, it's the BC Achievement Award, and I'll just read a little bit uh, uh, the the write-up that talks about why you were given this, why you are the recipient. It says, with tenacity and clear sense of purpose, Nora has spent over two decades working to ensure individuals with disabilities have access to education, social services, employment, and opportunities for recreation and socialization. So what inspired you to get involved that way? Well, I think the bottom line is that um, we have a son who lives with autism, who's, who's now 30 years old. So we've been on this 30-year journey with him. And as he grew and he went from needing, you know, good education to needing, um, you know, social out- outings and he needed to be connected with others and to just live a full life like the rest of us do, and I guess I modeled it a little bit on our older son, who is a, uh, a very keen hockey player. And, um, you know, I know when, when, old, when teenagers get together and they do sports, there's that incredible social component to it. And then there's always the, the part afterwards where they go out to a pub or they go out to eat and they become friends. And um, our younger son hadn't had that opportunity. So I think for me... As we, you know, and my family, as we moved along this journey with our son, 
it was really critical to give him the kind of opportunities to be social, to ha- live a full life, to be welcomed in his community. And the, certainly the, the ball hockey team is the, the, one of the big thing I did. I started in 2010. And what was that like, starting a team? Well, it was kind of fun because, um, because it was a hockey theme. We had a very longtime friend, Jim Diggins, who has been a coach for his sons and our older son for many, many years and was now without a coaching job because it was his volunteer role and um, his kids were grown. So I said to him, okay, I need you. And I phoned all the community centres around our home and uh, got the buy-in from the West Point Gray Community Centre. And we just slowly but surely built up a a group. And um, Jim, our coach, is so dynamic. And as a result now, we have about 17 guys that come out every Friday night together um, at 6 o'clock. And they play till 6.15. They drill. We do drills. We do scrimmages. We play um, other teams or even the fire department and, and the police have come out to play with us. And afterwards, they all organize themselves and go out to eat. And as a result, they've, you know, my son and all these guys have these friendships that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And that sounds, so that was, that, yeah, I would just say it sounds was, amazing. Yeah, well, it was just um, something that we realized would be important for, for him and, um, you know, the, the result, I think for me, it was that I never wanted to do things that would increase opportunity or accessibility just for our son. But I wanted to do have a bigger impact because it's the same amount of work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this way, many benefit. And um, the neat thing is that we've had tons and tons of young adults come out to help coach. And so we've increased the, you know, the volunteer base. And I think we've kind of inspired others to to do things and get involved and, and, you know, make their community a better place. And when you talk about that, seeing your older son playing hockey and going out and having that social aspect and your other Mm -hmm. your other son who's living with autism, was it there wasn't the opportunity or was it just more difficult or challenging for your son who lives with autism to try and get those same opportunities? Well, you know, there are there are things like Special Olympics. And the Canucks Autism Network offers lots and lots of sports and recreation. Um, I think at that time, though, um, I was I was just keen to do something that would be really specific for him, and and in the neighborhood, and again, just building capacity. So there are lots of other you know wonderful groups out there doing amazing things. And what has it been like then that you mentioned that I I think that's a a wonderful way of looking at it, that it's the same amount of work if you're doing it for for one person or for a whole bunch of people. You must have met people along the way and and really created networks of people maybe that that know exactly what what your family is like and maybe that that you have similarities with as well. Yes, the, um, the network is big. And, um, and all the families get together and they all support each other and, and I think share resources and ideas and, um, you know, for example, if for getting employment, we've had um, some really good employers for our son and many of them have just been people we knew in the community and we said, or I've met in meetings and I've said, you know, our son needs a job. <laughs> and they said, okay, when would you like to start? And I think it's that kind of um, network that builds um, just so much capacity in the system and just capacity, period. And, and I know, too, that um, I, I, as a consumer, 
prefer to shop where I know people have inclusive employment. And, and I think many, many other people do now. And um, it's becoming much more of a, a focus for many, many employers. Is it difficult as well, or, or is it uh, difficult? It's probably not the right word, but I, I would imagine you also want to find the balance in you don't want somebody, when we talk about an inclusive environment, almost mm-hmm. inclusive, I, w- I would think, to the way, to the point where you don't even really think about it. You don't want somebody given special treatment because perhaps they're living with autism, but also uh, d- this inclusive environment where you might, where everybody just kind of goes about their day and it works. That's the idea. You know, you know, many, many young adults and the youth that I work with, with that have developmental disabilities can be can look or act differently. And it doesn't mean they're strange or it doesn't mean they're different, but it just means they're themselves. And, you know, most of us, if, if you put many of us on a spectrum, we're all over the place on the spectrum. And, and I think we have to give other people the opportunity to just be themselves and live life to their fullest. That is very good advice. What are, <laughs> what are your thoughts on getting this award for the many, many hours and days and months of work you have put in? Well, it, it was, as I said, a big surprise. And um, there were 25 people across BC who, were, who received the award. And one of my colleagues um, is the person who put my name forward. And I, I'm sure the application process was very onerous. And I am extremely appreciative of her work. And I think my husband helped out too, which was fabulous. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was, um, I, you know, I don't do I, I don't do anything for recognition. And I think most of us don't. I just want to do the right thing. Um, that's that sounds very uh, precious. But um, just I think, you know, for me, it's just making things work. And if our son is better off at the end of the day and all of his friends are better off at the end of the day, then I'm very happy. All right. Well, Nora, we're so happy that you were able to join us and talk about this because I think it too will likely inspire others and show each other's, show others just what what one thing or, or small things can turn into big things and make such a huge difference. So thank you again so much for joining us and congratulations again on the award. Well, very much appreciated, Jill. Thank you for having me.